This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College. I'm Leslie Hinkson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're very excited to talk to David Brady, Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Blum Initiative on Global and Regional Poverty from the University of California, Riverside. David is the author of Rich Democracies, Poor People, How Politics Explain Poverty from Oxford University Press. And he has a new article and a great article that's uh, coming out in AGS. We're gonna talk about policy, equality, poverty, all here and abroad. You're not gonna wanna miss this. What's going on, guys? Oh, so much has gone down since (laughs) the last we spoke. <laughs> well, who wants to start? Should I tell my schlock? Yeah, yeah, uh, do, the, do the light item first. Yeah. Uh, I'll do the light item. So I was very excited this morning because I started getting some emails. Uh, I was on WNYC this morning to uh, talk about healthcare, And that grossly overstates what my ultimate contribution on air was. I got all excited because I'm like, oh, I'm on NPR. And uh, I got like five seconds and it was just me telling this real schlocky joke about how I was surprised by a medical care bill. And then they brought in like a a quality analyst to talk about the history. (laughs) (laughs) I I spent, I must've spent like an hour with this journalist and I had all sorts of interesting facts and whatever. I got a Canadian charge master to show the cost of healthcare and all that made it into the final cut was my uh, some some terrible joke. So, you want to tell the joke? Uh, you know what? I'd prefer <laughs> not to. I consider it a cool failure. In you fact, you realize we're all just going to go to wnyc.org and find out anyway. Uh, well, all right. Well, I think I uh, I think I said that getting a surprise medical bill. I it talked about it talked about a surprise medical bill that I got. And I said it was. Uh, it felt like uh, waking up in a bathtub full of ice when your kidney with your kidneys taken out. <laughs> it wasn't even a good joke, even though I laughed at it. That, that, that by the way, was the best I could do of a rim shot with my stapler. I'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was a terrible joke, and worse yet, as I'm prone to do, I laughed at my own yeah. joke. That's also <laughs> if I you didn't laugh at your own jokes, I'd wonder who you were and like why this pod person had overtaken Joko. <laughs> it was terrible. So I was like, but I, but the the uh, the kudos still rolled in, which was really weird. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, it's funny because, right, you, you congratulate somebody for being on the TV or on the radio or something, especially if it's. Um, you know, a high prestige outlet like NPR. But honestly, the most important thing for getting on the radio, and I'm not saying this is shit on you, uh, I, I do it too, is just getting back to them quickly and being willing to answer any question, even if it's well outside your expertise. Because the, the way yeah. journalists think is they just have like, quote, TK, right? Which is like, I need a quote for this. Well, it's their version of, I need a site for this. So like when you're writing a paper, you always have like, well, <clears throat> You know, here's this idiotic null hypothesis, but I've got, I can't just say my finding is obvious. I've got to set it up as if someone would actually expect to find the other. So I got to find some idiot who said X because I'm arguing Y. Right. And then so you'll write in a placeholder like I need a site for X and you'll spend the next two weeks, you know, walking around your department. Every person you bump into <laughs> saying, do you know a site on X? You know, and, and that's exactly <laughs> what a journalist daily work is of. They need to find somebody who's willing to say a quote. Because they can't just say their own speculations. They've got to find some very official-sounding Queens College professor person to repeat their own ideas back to them. You're so cynical. My goodness. So, you know what I want to talk about. All right. So, you know, it's crazy. Since we last spoke, like, Wisconsin – no, not Wisconsin. I always do that. Minnesota lost two of its favored sons, Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know – you know, from this sexual harassment and misconduct stuff that's going, that's sweeping the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was happening all along, but all of a sudden it's sweeping the nation. Um, and, you know, and we were going into, we're going into this uh, election in Alabama, unsure of whether or not, um, 
someone who'd had all of these allegations against him of, you know, being a creepoid and worse, right? Um, and and the, our, our president actually going and stumping for him, but you notice he didn't cross the state line into Alabama. I well, think got, just I so he can he deny warns. that he actually ever stumped for him. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But I, we woke up this morning, we woke up this morning, and... Well, um, what happened, Gabriel? Water flowed uphill, and um, a Democrat <laughs> yeah. won uh, an election in a state that's roughly eighty percent Republican. Unbelievable! Unbelievable! And how did they? How did? How did they do it? How did they manage to do that? Well, I, I think there's a few parts to it. One is that Republican turnout was way down. Something like a hundred thousand people who normally vote Republican mm-hmm. didn't show up. Another is that there were about 20,000 people who made write-in votes, which is way high. And you can probably presume that most of those, both the, obviously the Republicans who stayed home were probably Republicans disenchanted with the nominee. And likewise, probably the overwhelming majority of those write-in votes were uh, Republicans who didn't like their nominee. And then uh, you had higher turnout among uh, Democratic constituencies, especially black women. And so it's it's not I don't think there were that many people who switched their vote, but you did see a big turnout story, both in terms of uh, the Republican vote. I, suppressed isn't the right word because that implies like a transitive verb. But uh, you, you had a lot of the Republican mm-hmm. vote opted out of, uh, you know, making a, a, a moral compromise. Which is interesting, given the turnout was 40 percent. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is way higher than was projected. So usually turnout for an election like this is about 18 percent. They projected 25 percent and then it was 40 percent. Yeah. But the turnout was all higher on the on the Democratic side. Yes. Which is probably because Democrats have been demoralized in Alabama for such a long time. Perhaps they said this is our chance. This is our moment. You think it's going to be lasting or do you think it'll be all done in two years? I think it'll be done in two years. I mean, I, I can't imagine that. The, I mean, it, yeah, I who knows? Maybe people will still be listening to Steve Bannon then. But I, I kind of doubt that in two years, the Republican Party of Alabama is going to nominate a pederast who violates court orders. No, he'll be running for president. So number one, I think the Democrats all of a sudden have some energy, right? Uh, number two, I mean, maybe Doug Jones would a- will actually do a great job, right? And you know, and water will flow uphill again in two years. I don't know. <laughs> I do know, and it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite confident won't either. What do you, what'd you guys think about the Al Franken resignation? Uh, well, uh, I thought it – I mean, I kind of buy into the conventional wisdom that he didn't really want to go. He feels like mm-hmm. uh, his behavior wasn't egregious enough to justify a resignation. It, that's obviously debatable, but it is pretty clear that his behavior was less egregious than that of many other people who've been in the news lately. Um, mm-hmm. and, I mean, he still resigned, though, under his own volition. Well, you know what's funny is he technically promised to resign, but hasn't resigned yet. And right. so it's like a weird, you know, it's like, uh, if you give me an A now, I'll totally do extra credit after the end of the term. <laughs> over Christmas yeah. Break. yeah, I, I kind of thought like it was him <laughs> taking one for the team. That's right? what I thought They're too. Like, yeah. Is that right? he was hurting but, them on the Moore issue. Is that mm-hmm. obviously Moore's behavior was yeah. much worse than uh, Franken's behavior, but it was close enough that they could be called out as hypocrites. And so close enough. What are you talking about? It wasn't close enough at all. Well, you're not, I don't think. you're not to you and to me, there's a clear difference between um, a guy who's overly flirty and grabby and some guy who may or may not have been banned from the mall um, mm-hmm. and is signing high school yearbooks as a 30 year old prosecutor. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it, from somebody else's perspective, they could say, well, the Democratic Party uh, is refusing to purge their perverts. Why should we have to give up a Senate seat to purge our pervert? Right. And so if you take that, you know, apply your sociological for Stein, Leslie. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, know, as as we've seen, as we've seen with the Republicans, right, you know, you get you know, accused and you deny, and then you get voted in, right? But not more. Or you get to keep your, 
or yeah. but not more or you get to keep your job right whereas with the democrats you know it seems as though franken's like biggest mistake was to say yeah i did it and i'm sorry right and they're like okay you got to get out you got to get out I, I think it could be a, a, a very, very smart move. It all depends on how seriously people want to take this sexual violence and uh, sexual harassment issue. Like the Democrats just purged themselves of w- probably one of their top national political figures. Definitely yeah. one of their top five figures. And I, I, I had Roy been elected, well, then I think the, the vote would have been or the choice would have been quite clear. One party is, uh, you know, very, very strict on harassment and very strong on the issue. <laughs> Except for and Menendez. The other <laughs> yeah, isn't he on his way out as well? Well, it, but there, but the see, this is the funny thing, right? Is that it's easy to push uh, Franken out because the the governor of Minnesota is a, a Democrat, but the governor right. of Jersey is a Republican, yeah. and so you not know, for long. So that, yeah, but but until then, it's not that big a deal to. Um, Make sure that Medicare fraud doesn't get prosecuted, and you're signing, uh, you know, letters of recommendation for visas for underage mistresses. Yeah, although you know, that's not a big what, deal. I mean, although I do think one of the differences that the Democrats can point to, and you know, and you can say that it's, you know, it's it's I don't know, cynical or what have you, is that Menendez actually had his day in court, right, and he wasn't convicted. So you know, that's it. So, I mean, that's one of the things you can say. That, that's about you know, as credible as saying that, um, you know, the grabbing by the pussy tape was fake. I mean. <laughs> no, no, no. That is, I don't think it's as credible as that. I mean, he did actually, he did actually face a jury and it was a hung jury. Right? Yeah, because they, they did like, it, the defense was kind of ridiculous where they basically said everybody does it and they're just after him because he's Latino. And let him off on that basis. It was like a Johnny Cochran defense. It was bullshit. Yeah. I'm just saying that, you know, that if the Democratic Party wanted to do it, they'd at least have that technicality in saying, well, due process. Oh, I agree. That, know, that it, creates a, it, it creates a permission structure for people who want to say there's a difference. But again, in the same way that I'm saying, like, you, you've got to view it from the view. So th- I, I think there's a, a useful way to think about things is that people take a standard of can we believe it or must we believe it? And, mm-hmm. you know, when something is inconvenient for you to believe, you apply a can, a, a must we believe it standard. And so if there's something like, well, he was acquitted or, or, or not even acquitted, but well, there was a mistrial. Hung jury. Yeah. Hung jury. You know, or you, know or you say, well, you know, um, the person wrote a note in the yearbook. And so that counts as it being forged you know, or something yeah. like that, you know, the, or Bernie Bernstein was sniffing around, you know. <laughs> yeah, I love Bernie Bernstein. <laughs> well, th- this really was, it, it really I, was his night last night. <laughs> I'm sure, though, that as we're spe- that as we're speaking, that there are there are closed door meetings being had with with Menendez right now, um, with Dems like trying to urge him right to do the right thing and get out of the way. Right. But gen- but it's a gentle push. They're not trying to shove them over the cliff like they did. With I, I feel like anybody trying to, have you ever tried to pull a starfish off a rock? I, I think that's what it's going to be like <laughs> for the Democratic Party to, uh, yeah. But then the other thing too, is I also think that this is part, I actually think it's part of a bigger strategy, right? I mean, so, what does Donald Trump do yesterday? He decides to tweet about Gillibrand, right? And basically say, you know, you know, she came to me begging and would do anything. I mean, no, anything. no, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, so there is a distinction, as I said on Twitter yesterday, there is a distinction. <laughs> colloquial English, there's a distinction between anything and anything, anything. Anything, yes. corruption, <laughs> anything, Anything uh, means sex. I don't think. I don't think that's right. But and he didn't say anything. Anything. He said anything, which means corruption. <laughs> well, let me. All I will say to that is, I actually think that he made 
he made some people really angry, right? And specifically, he made a lot of women angry. And I think that there are going to be many more Democrats now and some Republicans piling on now to say, you know what, let's, uh, let's have an investigation into all of these sexual misconduct cases. What I agree with you is that it was interpreted that way. And also, um, I kind of feel like getting, I, I do think he, that that statement was misinterpreted, but I also think it couldn't happen to a nicer guy, right? I mean, I kind of think he has, it, he, <laughs> he doesn't, he has it coming to have people misinterpret things he says as sexual innuendo because he is not exactly a gentleman. Oh my goodness. You, you are so polite there. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. So what I think is really interesting about this is I view it as kind of a glass half full thing for, you know, the overwhelming strength of um, uh, partisanship. So, you know, one way to view it is that, hooray, partisanship is weak enough that people were willing to vote against a pederast, um, you know, which is actually kind of a dog bites man, a man bites dog thing today, right? Because we expect party. Wait, yeah. wait, vote against or not, not show, show up to vote? Excuse for. me, thank you. Uh, it, that partisanship was insufficient to motivate people to vote for a pederast just because he had the right letter before his name and therefore is going to, um, you know, side with them on abortion. Uh, Can yeah. I just jump in though and and just comment to say? that we're basically relieved that partisanship didn't drive us to put a, a pedophile into pederast. Congress. Like that's, <laughs> you remember that episode? Pederast. There's a difference. Pederast. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Can you give me the difference? I thought they were so The age, the yeah. age. Oh, excuse, excuse me. David, do you have something to, uh, to say here? Well, I mean, they're definitely – the partisanship story works, but I was just looking at the CNN uh, uh, out, you know, the polls, the exit polls, and only 51% of independents voted for Jones. So Jones barely won independents. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Partisanship clearly matters. But, you know, the bigger cleavages were race and age and college education. So race, everybody knows that story. But the age cleavage is really remarkable because – uh, Jones won everybody under 49. I mean, he won amongst uh, even middle-aged people, but he just got killed amongst older people. So that was kind of interesting. And then the college education split is really remarkable. And Jones won amongst college graduates, you know? And so it was education, race, age, and, and partisanship is obviously mixed up with that, but it wasn't just partisanship. Is this like the tyranny of the old man, what's going on here? <laughs> like, is that is is that basically... Well, old women voted for more too, you know, so that's a weird part. So it's the old people tyranny or something like that. Isn't everything about that tyranny? They, they voted for Brexit. They voted for Trump. You know, I mean, they're pretty consistent. They're they're more old than partisan, I guess. I guess. Yeah. I watched Hannity and honestly, he sounded like an old crank. I realize he himself may not be super old, but like the tenor of his stories are like, look at these foreigners and look at these kids. And I thought, wow, this is like get off my lawn type of uh, <laughs> yeah. news commentary. Yeah, Jones won even amongst 40-year-olds. Jones won 53-46. But then he loses 53-46 amongst 50s and 60-year-olds and like um, even higher amongst the older. So the age cleavage was really big too. What, how did gender – what role did gender play? Um, well, Jones won women, mm-hmm. uh, but – you know, 5741. Uh, but, you know, that's tricky because I don't know the turnout by race and sex together. And mm-hmm. so it's hard to say what share of female vote was, was African-American relative to the population. My understanding is that Moore got about 65% of white women, which sound, and people were like complaining about that and saying, oh my God. But I always think yes. like, it's not realistic to expect a demographic to, to suddenly flip overnight, right? It's not realistic to expect mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, a Republican constituency, which, you know, Southern white women are a Republican constituency to vote for uh, to change overnight. But what's interesting is that that's so to me, 65 percent instead of 50 percent is not interesting. It's 65 percent versus 80 percent, which is about yeah. what Romney got among white women. And so, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. that 15 yeah, yeah, percent drop, f- excuse me, 15 percentage point drop, because I have to intimidate our non-quant listeners by uh, pointing out that I know there's a difference. Uh, the 15 percentage point drop is uh, that that shows, yeah. you know, a reflection of people are paying attention to the actual candidate and not just uh, blindly following partisan loyalty. 
Yeah, you know, I I still though I know this is totally not news, but I still cannot get over uh, Republican voting amongst whites without college degrees. I mean, it's just stunning how bad it is there. You know, um, I like in the Virginia race. Did you see this? Uh, Democrats did worse amongst whites without college degrees than they did amongst gun owners, <laughs> and it's just remarkable. They've completely lost whites without college degrees. And I mean, you know, you think historically, at least, a party of organized labor of the working class and income is correlated with education. You would think they would at least have some stable constituencies there, but they're just getting killed amongst whites without college degrees. Well, the converse to that is that Republicans are losing college-educated whites, and so like, um, yeah, 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 Trump yeah. did right. worse. Um, among, noticeably worse among college-educated whites than he did with than did Romney. Um, it's just he did, he basically took a hundred percent of the non-college white vote. Yeah, but you know we this I admitted this is not news because this has been a slowly emerging trend. But at least since like mid Clinton, there has been this phenomenon of like whites with an economic interest in voting Democrat clearly not doing so. And I know that's not radical news, but it still blows my mind how much it's happening. What do you think? I, I always understand it in terms of like uh, separate universes of information, like the rise of radio yeah. and Fox News. And they just we're just we're living in completely different Americas now in so far as our understanding as it's conveyed to us through the media. Well, I think yeah. I, I think that's part of it. Right. But I mean, even in my NPR bubble, I still listen to Fox News. Right. Um and, you know, maybe that maybe that's just me. Like I have sort of this broad palette and I'm a glutton for punishment. But yeah. um, but I actually think I, I actually think that, um, you know, this demographic that you're pointing to, I think that they have contacts with people outside. Right. Of their, you know, of their little bubble. And I think that they do get certain kinds of information Um Information that's contrary, perhaps, to, you know, what most of the people in their network uh, seem to agree with or um, or seem to be passing along to each other. And I'm sure that that information gives them pause, but they still go they still go on and vote the way that they do. So I like, you know, whatever I'd like to I'd like to give that demographic a lot more credit than, you know, than thinking that they know absolutely no. Yeah. I'm with Leslie on this. I think you're right. I mean, information would help. Sure, it'd be good. But it doesn't seem like they – even if they – I don't know if more information could correct why they're voting Republican. And I think it's about these values issues. And by values, I mean racism and values of you know men's role in society and values of guns and these sorts of cultural issues are just trumping their information on academic issues. And you could say they're actually high information voters because they're voting on things like abortion and they're voting on issues like they view – uh, you know, well, this isn't high information, but they view the white race as under threat, you know, or something like this. So they have they have information. It's not good information, but they certainly are coding their vote in in line with their values. So I, I have two points. Number one, um, I want after we finish taping, I want you guys to give me your home addresses because I'm buying you National Review subscriptions for Christmas because I'm sick of you guys constantly talking about learning <laughs> stuff from Fox and Hannity and all that stuff. It's a Shonda for the elites. So, uh, well, I actually, I actually used to have a National <laughs> Review subscription and and then yeah. I let okay. it last. Well, that's fair enough. But... I, I just say like you don't yeah. have to listen to the crap, right? I mean, you, you wouldn't... Um, yeah, but yeah. Gabriel... But I was just talking to a colleague yeah. in the hallway, Gabriel, who teaches. He's an ag economist, and we were talking about teaching intro to sure. public policy. And I actually do tend to agree that uh, in higher education, we're doing a poor job of being politically balanced. I think we could do better. I think there's a real dilemma there, and I think we turn off a lot of young people by coming across this sort of strident sure. ideologue. So I agree. But when you teach intra public policy, there's nothing serious on the right when it comes to issues of climate change, when it comes to issues of even, frankly, poverty and social policy. There's The right has sort of vacated serious intellectual oh, I, spaces. I totally and no disrespect to national so, view. Um, yeah. Okay, but there's but, but we can yeah. argue about this. But I think that the – I mean there's no serious intellectual on the right arguing against climate change. So – and yet that's the mainstream Republican position. So how can I be politically open-minded to Republicans on certain scientific issues when no – I mean they're, if they're arguing against climate change on the right, they're not intellectually serious. I'm going to make a few points. So number one, I wasn't saying read National Review because you guys are only talking about NPR. I was just saying don't read crap. 
right? And NPR is high quality content. And so I'm glad you got but Gabriel, I would conjecture that there's a there's a scarcity of high quality intellectual content on the right. No, no, I, I and I disagree with that. I think there's actually okay. Give me give me a name of someone intellectually serious I should be reading. David Frum, I like him. Max Boot, I like. Yeah, him. but political hack consultants, I don't know. Yeah, including well, Max Boot is easy because he's it, well. Okay, so David Frum, I th- I think is worth reading, okay. including on the stuff where you probably disagree with him. Um, you know. Um, mm. I'd say that basically anyone associated with Yuval Levin is worth reading. So I would read with Yuval. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So read Yuval Levin. Read his magazine. Um, it's it's not a public interest. It's like the resurrected version of a public interest. I think it's called National Affairs. Just and um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, read some of those people. And then specifically on the issue of like climate change, there are plenty of right wing intellectuals who admit that climate change is happening happening and that it's anthropogenic, but have serious doubts about what a, a mitigation strategy would involve. And so uh, Jim Manzi is good on that. Yeah. And you could disagree with that, but that's not just like a head in the sand yeah. attitude, right? And that's- a- No, I understand. But I would say that the, the right has had a progressive growing hostility to science. And with that, one of the consequences has been that really serious intellectuals stop being, I mean, 30, 40 years ago, you could be hardcore mm-hmm. belief in science and be on the right. These days, you're much less likely. Well, uh, yeah. So I-, I- I know what you're saying more than you'd think, uh, you know. <laughs> so the other point is that we're we're getting into this trap, which I really don't like, of pathologizing um, people who vote against their objective class interests and based on their ideological interests when it's on the right. And if it's, say, downscale white people uh, voting on the right. Um, and, we're, and I think there's a flip side to that, which is that um, – you know, it, it's it's weird to pathologize that instead of calling it principled. Uh, it's, it could be principles you disagree with, but like, I doubt we'd be having the same conversation if we were talking about stockbrokers who vote for the Democratic Party because they care a lot about gay marriage, right? That that would be people voting against yeah, their I economic interests, and we're not pathologizing it and saying what's the matter with the Upper West Side. No, that's okay. I was just going to say I think that I, I think that there's a difference though because you know I, I think it's one thing to uh, to vote against your economic interest right in order to to actually help to you know to elevate uh, a group right uh, socially right and and ensure equality for another group I think some of the I think some of the platform that you know the group the other group we're talking about is doing, what they're doing is they're shooting themselves in the foot in terms of their economic interests in order to ensure that other people okay, get that's, less. But that that's just amounts to, to saying that you dislike their principles, which is fine. You don't have to like them. But I mean, from their point of view, they could say they are voting against their interests in order to promote a um, their economic interests in order to promote a principle that they care about, which is to elevate a danger endangered group. And they are and the endangered group they would point to is fetuses. Right. So if you look at the mm. argument within the right with people saying like, oh, well, you should some more. So even though you don't want to vote for a pederast or somebody who violates court orders or all these other disgusting things about more vast majority of which were known before we found out he was a pederast. Um, you know, it doesn't matter because if you vote for Jones, you're responsible for abortions. Now, you might think that uh, if you're pro-choice, that's great. I'm just saying from their point of view, that is about protecting an endangered group and bringing that endangered group up. And if you don't agree with that, it's only because you disagree yeah. with the principle, which is fine. You don't have to. I'm just no, saying no, that no, that's no, about, no, no. from their subjectively, was, it's about protecting was, the endangered. But but that wasn't one of the groups that we that we were talking about before. We we're talking about we we're talking about men who are in from that group who are increasingly losing their jobs and not being part of the workforce and women are rising up and, you know, and then the minority threat. So anyway, I'm shutting up. You have to distinguish between the Trumpist constituency within the Republican Party that votes for this kind of craziness in the primary and then the kind of like what is still the core of the Republican Party in general elections of social conservatives who will vote for these guys reluctantly both Trump himself and more um, in the general election, but wouldn't necessarily favor them 
as much in the primary. Okay. I mean, yeah, Gabriel, I agree with you. I don't think we should pathologize these people. I just think it's really interesting because there's been such a stark overtime change. So in the early 90s, Democrats would win whites without mm-hmm. college degrees. And so what's really changed is this evolution of the white working class or however we want to call them, the whites sure. without college their evolution away from the Democrats in the past 20 to 30 years. That's just interesting. Secondly, I would say during this time, their economic insecurity has gotten much worse. So it's one thing to be economically secure and vote in sort of a post-material way about your cultural wedge issues. It's surprising to me when you're increasingly economically insecure to vote against your economic interests. But I agree with you. They're voting on things they care deeply about. I agree And now we turn to David Brady, Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Blum Initiative on Global and Regional Poverty at the University of California, Riverside. David is the author of Rich Democracies, Poor People, How Politics Explain Poverty from Oxford University Press. And more recently, he's been working on the risk of poverty across the developed world and has a new AJS paper, Hot Off the Presses, Rethinking Risks of Poverty, a framework for analyzing prevalences and penalties. Thank you for joining us, David. My pleasure. David, I want to start off by saying I loved your paper. It was uh, It's a great paper that I think strikes at the core of a central premise of policymaking. And I thought you could kick it off by telling us what it's about. Well, so we try to think about these risks of poverty, and there's four big risks of poverty at the individual level, unemployment, low education, single motherhood, and young headship. And so much poverty research and poverty policy is about correcting these risks, trying to get poor people to stop having kids out of wedlock, forming households at a young age, fail to finish schooling, and fail to be employed. And we argue that this has really been the the central focus of American poverty research in particular. And when you really analyze these risks and look at how much they're really, how many people really are in these risk categories, what we call prevalences, and how much these categories are associated with poverty, what we call penalties, you've come up with some pretty surprising conclusions. And so we argue that these risks are not really where we should be focusing our attention if we want I don't understand what causes poverty. Here, here, yeah. <laughs> I thought that your uh, your paper had some very interesting comments on U.S. policy in particular. Would you be able to give us a little bit of that? Uh, well, I mean, one thing I could say would be that like, it's striking when you really look at it carefully how the United States actually has below average prevalences of these risks. Right. We have this impression in America that the problem of poverty is caused by we have too much single parenthood, too much low education, too much unemployment, and so forth. But when you compare us to other countries or even to the United States in the past, we're actually below average on these prevalences. We don't have that many people in single parent households. We don't have that many people that fail to finish high school. We don't have that many people that lack employment in their household and so forth. So I think that was a big surprise is that if we think we can reduce poverty by fixing the poor people's behavior and their risk behaviors, mm-hmm. we're mistaken. We're just, there's not, there's not enough there there to reduce that you could really substantially move the amount of poverty in society. And so we do these simulations. Like we show, what if you could go backwards in time and go back to uh, when single parenthood was much lower? And would poverty be much lower? And we find, no, not at all. In fact, we do a simulation that shows if you completely eliminated single motherhood in American society, the U.S. would still have the second highest poverty amongst the rich democracies. Hmm. So you just can't move the needle very much by, by manipulating these risks. And similarly, we show that, you know, the U.S. actually has pretty good educational attainment compared to other rich democracies. There's pretty high levels of employment compared to other rich democracies. So if we assume... That- I, I have two clarifying questions. Number one, um, are you defining single parenthood as unmarried parenthood or are you defining it as, you know, only one adult in the household? And second of all, uh, is this pre-TNT or post-TNT? David, can you explain what TNT or taxes and transfers are? Yeah, so the, all of that saying is that um, you should measure income as what they call disposable income, which is the actual economic resources people actually have disposable to them. And if you're going to do that, you have to factor in the taxes they're paying out and the transfers they're getting in. That's the real income. Everybody lives in a post tax and transfer world. No one lives in a pre-tax and transfer world. And so we often refer to that as TNT or tax and transfers. Actually, I don't know, aside from Gabriel, if anyone actually calls it TNT. 
I constantly say that and people always ask me what I mean. So yeah, <laughs> as an income and poverty researcher, I honestly have not heard it called TNT. Um, but I but I think of it as just disposable income. So I mean, the way to think of it is if you want to measure poverty, you want to measure resources as comprehensively as you possibly can, right? And even so, even with what we're doing, which we think is pretty state of the art, you know, we're not measuring the taxes that people pay in consumption taxes or in value added taxes. And so we still miss indirect taxation, but we're getting the direct taxation that affects the money that shows up in the bank for families and households. Uh, everything is post TNT, which is really the only way you should do it. Um, but secondly, uh, but especially if you're interested in policy as a mechanism, right? Because it drives me crazy when people yeah. are like, oh, we need to solve poverty um, uh, with uh, tax and transfers. And then their measure of poverty is pre TNT. Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't be, no one should be measuring anything pre-TNT. That's like this this sort of abstraction we we got addicted to in poverty research, and it's not a good measure. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just, you know, I can talk about that. Well, let me just say one thing about that. Every time we estimate pre-TNT, pre-tax and transfer, you're assuming there's no behavioral response to taxes and transfers. In other words, you're mm -hmm. saying that if we took away taxes and transfers, their employment levels, their earnings levels would not respond. So it's a simulation yeah. of what your earnings would be if you didn't have taxes and transfers. But of course, everybody earns partly in response to knowing what their taxes and transfers are going to be. So for example, we earn a certain amount in the labor market knowing we have social security to protect our economic security in old age, right? We know this mm -hmm. and we would behave differently in the labor market and how we constitute our families when we stopped working if we didn't have Social Security available. So well, the big one is disability is where, you know, if you have people who are earning very little, they, they could, you know, there is a certain amount of endogeneity to disability and that you can define yourself as disabled if you're really just a very low wage worker. Yeah, although disability is like kind of a tricky one because it's ex actually extraordinarily difficult to qualify for disability insurance in the United States. So people talk about disability a lot, they study it a lot, and it's true disability insurance has increased in recent decades in the U.S., but it's still a really, really small share of the population and it's still extremely and, and a lot of the uh, Northern European democracies. Like yeah, that's true. Netherlands, really high, for example. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I mean, I would say, I mean, you know, I just think American poverty researchers and not just American policymakers, we tend to criticize Congress or politicians or commentators how they talk about it. But even American poverty researchers have been pretty singularly obsessed with the risk behavior of poor people. And mm -hmm. my argument is that if you look at this in a more macro perspective, there's just not enough room there to significantly reduce poverty. So if I, if I try to convert your findings into a non-specialist language. Uh, what I'm understanding is you're saying that the idea that welfare perpetuates poverty because it encourages people not to get a job or to go ahead and have kids without thinking about the consequences, that whole idea that we can stop poverty by creating disincentives, by making it hard to not work or, or making it uh, posing challenges or problems for people who have kids young or out, out of marriage. You're saying that even though it might discourage those behaviors by undercutting the welfare state, by undercutting social services, people more people are going to be poor despite the fact that they might make the right choices and making the wrong choices really makes people poor. Is that the basic thrust of what you're arguing? Yeah, I agree with that, but I don't even believe that there's much incentive effect at all. Okay, so one of the things we do is we measure the penalties. So if you're a single mother, what, how much does that increase your probability of being poor? And we argue in the paper that's actually a pretty good measure of the disincentive effect, right? So if you know you're very likely to be poor if you become a single mother, that's going to be a powerful disincentive from being a single mother, right? Because that factors in not only the welfare benefits, but all the bases of your economic insecurity, your ability to get a job and so forth. Mm -hmm. So if you know that if you don't work, if you're an unemployed household, that you're definitely going to be poor, that's a powerful disincentive to being unemployed. So first of all, we have a pretty good way to measure these disincentives better than measuring, say, the generosity of policies. Secondly, I'd say the overwhelming consensus in the science literature these days is that these disincentive effects are very small and mostly non-existent. The fact that we still talk about it is really the problem. It's I've argued that like the obsession with disincentives is kind of like climate change mm -hmm. denial. The science has never been there. The science is not good. And so we there's never been people that have convincingly shown that people become poor because of a generous welfare benefit or some sort of dependency. That evidence has always been weak. Last but not least, we show in the paper that if 
these, if it was, there's a strong penalty to single motherhood, discourages single motherhood or low education, young headship or unemployment. If there was a tight negative association between the penalty and the prevalence, you would see a strong negative correlation, but you don't see that cross nationally. Tons of countries have very little penalty for these risks and still have low prevalences. And similarly, countries have very high penalties for these risks, like the United States penalizes the hell out of single mothers, but we still have a fairly large share of single mothers compared to other rich democracies. So there's no correspondence between how much you get penalized if you fall into these categories Mm -hmm. and how much people are likely to fall into these categories. Why do you think that is actually? Why do you why do you think this this unwillingness to let go of um, of of focusing on these specific behaviors of poor people rather than actually saying, hmm, why don't we like zoom out a little bit and look a little bit at structure, <laughs> right? And look a little bit. I mean, right, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, there's lots of good arguments out there about why we label the poor this way or try to fix the poor or focus on their individual behavior. Um, I've made arguments about this, but so have many others. You know, uh, Michael Katz writes about this in The Undeserving Poor. Mark Rank has a nice book on this. So like lots of good arguments exist. And part of it's about race. Part of it's about gender. Part of it's about sort of the individualism of American society. But I would put some of the blame on American poverty researchers in that this is an extremely, extremely ethnocentric field. American poverty researchers start and only study the United States, and then they don't have a perspective of how other countries do it. And they fail to see that what we believe to be true doesn't hold in most other settings. And so then that kind of feeds itself. And I think, you know, one of the problems is just American poverty research is just too parochial. And, um, you know, this is, and I would say this is the case in economics and psychology, but I actually think it's much worse in sociology. Sociology is extremely and exclusively focused on the United States when it studies poverty. So I think that's a major source of the problem is that we don't have a comparative perspective. And for example, um, you know, we talk about this in the paper, there's large literatures on welfare reform, on fragile families, on the culture of poverty that just seems completely unaware of research on poverty in other countries. Mm -hmm. And if they were aware, they wouldn't make some of the empirical claims they make very routinely. I have a little pet theory about that because that's something that I've felt in in my research and my interactions with Americans. And uh, I feel like uh, when you are dealing with Europeans or Canadians, the uh, researcher or research has a more pragmatic view where you have a problem and you realize that maybe, you know, there's going to be some type of government program that you don't want to go too far on, but you don't want to have no government programs. And I feel like uh, the way to uh, bubble through or uh, break through the clutter in U.S. society is to have very simple, extreme ideological arguments. Like it's always a battle for socialism versus <laughs> capitalism here as if, you know, there's a pure version of either uh, in existence and as if either would be like a feasible way of organizing a society. What, what do you – Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, you're right because in comparative social policy debates in Europe, it's almost like a debate about fine-tuning. It's like, you know, well, we don't want to make the disincentives too generous or no, we don't want to make the replacement rate too low. It's not about whether we should have these, you know, benefits at all. Right. And so this. Yeah, you're right. Americans very, very much making an ideological debate. But I don't know that that explains why American poverty researchers only look at them at the United States. That, that one, I think, is sort of a sort of parallel or interacting problem, because, I mean, there are plenty of fields of social science where we're pretty international, but American poverty research is not one of them. Well, so I don't know. Is it partly because we keep tell- we keep using the same line of how well, you know, the United States is much more heterogeneous. We're much larger, right? And, you know, the whole, like, American exceptionalism is, I mean, I think that that's a line that people have been using in the social sciences for a very yeah. long time to not look outside of the United States. And even poo-poo at Canada, which really isn't that, I mean, it's different, yeah, but it's yeah, not yeah. that different. That's a good point. I mean, um, but that doesn't, that's true. And I think that's right. And it's, you know, and that I, 
I think you would agree that the United States isn't actually as you know much more heterogeneous than several different countries. There's lots of diverse countries exactly. in rich democracies, and several that have larger immigrant shares than we do. Several that are multilingual, for example, more than we are Canada, for example. So there's lots of heterogeneity in rich democracies. It's a bit of a myth to say that Northern Europe is exclusively homogeneously white. That's just not true. But secondly, I think what's interesting, Leslie, is that might work as an excuse in American poverty studies, but then why do we have all these other fields of scholarship where it's totally understood you need to be international, you need to be comparative? Moreover, why is it American sociology is so ethnocentric about the U.S., but American economics is hmm. less so? Um, why is demography more international than, say, uh, poverty scholarship within American sociology? Um, and so that that cross-disciplinary and cross-field heterogeneity in parochialism is interesting as well. Do you well, think right? that some of it has to do with the difficulty of comparing poverty across societies, like with available data? But it's not difficult, right? We've made enormous strides since what? The Luxembourg Income Study has been up and running since the late 80s. The science of poverty measurement, the science of international comparison of income is a really, really robust field. There's tons of smart people working on it. There's journals about it. There's there's even this thing called the Canberra Consensus where the United Nations convened a group of income, poverty, income poverty researchers on basic standards of how to measure income. So there's lots of international cooperation. Um, so I, I don't think it's that hard. We actually have, I think, a pretty good science of how to measure poverty comparatively. There's still debates like how do you measure poverty in poor countries versus rich countries. But we actually are making much more progress on income and poverty measurement cross-nationally than we do in many other fields. What's the uh, public reception been of your – when you've uh, presented these findings to non-specialists, what's the reaction been? Uh, non I don't I don't think I've had much of an audience with non-specialists. Um, I presented it to different kinds of audiences. The Europeans think, well, this is obvious. We already knew this. The economists think like, well, yeah, but none of this is causally identified. And the sociologists think like, you know, quit shaming us for being obsessed with, uh, you know, the one slice of poverty we study, you know. And so American sociologists are I don't know what they think about it. I'll give one story on this regard is that I went up to there was a, a very, very prominent sociological poverty researcher that presented at my former employer. And this person spoke about uh, a, a group that was one of these risk groups. And I went up to this person and said, yeah, but what if they were born in Sweden? What would have happened if they were born in Sweden? Just to have the counterfactual comparison. And this person thought I was kidding and just burst into laughter. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm serious. Like, actually, what if would your, would your findings hold? And it just doesn't occur to them to think about other countries. So I think American sociological poverty researchers are too focused only on the United States. I'd even go further. I think they're too focused on poverty in inner city communities in the upper Midwest and Northeastern cities. And they don't even study, you know, I mean, that's really the, the, the sort of thing. <laughs> no, I'm not because that's the entire field. That's pretty much the entire field, right? Is that they're uh -huh. really, really fixated on Chicago and some Northeastern cities. They no, don't, you're right. Not, I mean, you don't yeah, hear that much about poverty in Los Angeles, yeah, even though poverty yeah. is a severe problem here. And yeah, um, in fact, like uh, this was like a small item in the news, but one of these massive fires that shut down a fair amount of, West Los Angeles last week was caused by uh, a homeless cooking fire. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like one of the areas of poverty research where there's actually a thin amount of literature um, is on immigrant poverty. And that's really relevant mm -hmm. and important here in this part of the country, Gabe. But I mean, you don't see much yeah. research on that. You don't see much as much research on Appalachia as you do on Chicago. You don't see as much research on what, you know, the South has more poverty than the North by a large margin, but you wouldn't know that from the way we study poverty in the United States in sociology specifically. So I have a, a question about how to think about this. It, with it, so again, to alienate our non-quant <laughs> listeners yet again uh, with our uh, showing off our knowledge of fancy models, like if you look at like a Cox model, which I'm generally not a fan of, but I'm just using it as an example, the assumption is is that things happen at certain times, and the only question we know that something that somebody dies on this day, and somebody dies on that day, and somebody dies on that day, and the only question is. Who does it happen to the first time? Who does it happen to the second time? Who does it happen to the third time? So would it be a good way to think about it in terms of uh, kind of analogous to that in that the overall macro TNT welfare state, whatever, um, structures society such that you're going to have a certain poverty level 
And then all these like individual factors about single mothers and whatever, it applies to, to whom does it happen? Yeah. But the big, you know, so those individual factors can, uh, you know, so the, the macro stuff will determine that I have no idea what the right number is, but let's say 20% of the population is going to be poor. And then those micro factors say who's in that 20% or, or is that the wrong way to think about it? No, that's not wrong. I mean, you know, Mark Rank has this nice metaphor. He says, you know, you should think of poverty like a game of musical chairs and that the problem is we don't have enough chairs. And so somebody is going to be, you know, stuck without a chair. And yeah, there's probably individual characteristics that predict who's not going to get a chair, the slower person, the person not paying as close of attention to chairs and so forth, you know, and similarly, there's going to be somebody that's going to be left out of the system if the system is built to basically ensure 15 to 20% of people are going to be poor. Now, that said, though, if we agree to that argument, and I do agree generally with your point, Gabriel, but that does mean we can't explain the big differences in poverty, the big cross-national and historical differences, and we can't address the challenge of lowering the amount of poverty in society by playing with the individual characteristics that predict who is likely to be poor. Moreover, the second issue is that it's surprising how unreliable those characteristics are across countries. So for example, you know, single motherhood is the one that American poverty researchers study the most, right? So it's, it's sort of an easy one to, to fixate on. Um, but the, the coefficient for single motherhood is only statistically significant in 13 of 29 rich democracies in our study. So in the majority of countries, being a single mother does not actually significantly predict who's poor. So even those risks, who's going to be poor, are pretty unreliable predictors across contexts. And so that then... Uh, um, statistical significance as a measure of effect size. Are the sample sizes relatively big in each context? They're plenty big. Yeah, yeah. So we talk okay, about, so for example, really is measuring yeah. a weak effect, not just a small yeah, sample size. Yeah, it's definitely not that. And you could just look at the magnitude of the coefficient. So you could look at what we call the penalties and just compare the magnitudes of the penalties. And the single motherhood penalties are surprisingly small in many rich democracies, but they're mm-hmm. also statistically significant. And yeah, we have huge case. I mean, we have tons of data. So we got millions of data. Points. Okay, that's not our problem. And why is that? Is that an aggressive welfare state? Um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I give the example, like one that's come out, and I did a paper in demography with Rebecca Burroway about five years ago. We showed that, you know, it, it's, it doesn't appear that single mothers are more likely to be poor in Denmark, for example. And so it's social policy. Yeah, it's a political choice to provide uh, benefits and financial support to children in general. And the corollary consequence of that is that single mothers are not economically insecure. Or not as so, as much so. I I have very mixed feelings about um, a relative poverty measure. It seems like over the long run, it's intuitively the only way to do it, right? That it would be absurd to not use a relative measure to measure poverty in the Roman Empire versus today. Wait, Um, why? Wait, but, wait, wait. You mean that you would not use a relative measure or would you would you use a No, no, that you yeah, have yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, I see what right? you're saying. So yeah. You wouldn't want to say that the yes. emperor Tiberius was poor because he didn't have indoor plumbing. Right, correct, correct. Yeah, but uh, you can also yeah. – no, but that's not true because you can also say that like I do have indoor plumbing. Thus, I live much better than the emperor Tiberius and he was poor compared to me. Yeah. Like well, I know, I, yeah, Gabriel, I know that you're a little skeptical of these relative measures. Can we talk about that right away? Because that's a classic issue where sociologists um, are raise skepticism. Interestingly, economists don't, um, but uh, and demographers don't usually as well. But it, it is a classic issue. So let's talk about that. Is that okay if we talk a little yeah, bit? Yeah, and I, I want to be clear. I, I don't think it's wrong. I just have mixed feelings. And it's like if I look at it closing my left eye, it looks like the right idea. And if I look at it closing my right eye, it seems like the wrong idea. Okay, well, like um, I'll give so you I, the I, easy I, reasons, and then I'll give you like a more thought out reason for why. Yeah, sure. We should almost always measure poverty relatively. So the easy stuff is that there's no defensible absolute alternative that has emerged. So no one has come up with a good absolute measure that I trust. And I like in my two thousand. You're, you're not fan of triple. Well, like in, in my in my book in two thousand nine, like I go through some of the alternatives, yeah. and they just look absurd on their face. Um, it's a oh more, yeah, I agree. That's something yeah. like how much does it cost for food, and let's triple that. Is yeah, that, none of that makes sense. Okay, well, so there's that. It's a you know relative deprivation is probably a better predictor of life chances. There's good evidence that it's more valid for leading mm-hmm. conceptualizations of poverty, like capability deprivation or social exclusion. And like you said, it's more reliable and realistic when you're comparing across societies. But let's look at the concept, the good, the best reason to measure poverty relatively. Okay, is that. Here's sure. the here's a, a clear definition of poverty that I think you'll agree with. Poverty is a shortage of resources 
relative to needs, right? We agree with that. Okay. So, yeah. and, and we can talk about how to measure resources, but I think we'd agree you'd want to measure those as comprehensively as you can, right? So you want the best measure of resources you've got. Okay. So now when we think of its rel- resources relative to needs, you have to define needs relatively. And I, you don't have to, but it's really hard to sustain a definition of needs that isn't cultural, historical, and institutionally contextualized. And think as a sociologist that studies culture, I don't think you would define needs separate from a cultural and historical context, right? And so if that's the case, no, no, then you have to is, use a relative this measure. Is what I, well, I, I wanna agree with you in, in, in part, and just say that this is partly an issue of intuition in that an intuitive, so like 10 years ago, would I intuitively have defined um, having a smartphone as a need? I would have said, no, that's a luxury. And basically because I didn't have one yet. And then five years ago, I had a smartphone, but I'd only recently gotten one. And so I wouldn't, I still wouldn't define it as a need because I still saw it as a lo- more or less a luxury, but one that I myself had attained. And, but it would strike me as absurd that just because I now had a smartphone that somebody else who was just on the cusp of being poor is now poor because they don't. Yeah, but yeah. in 10 years... It would be absurd to say that, you know, somebody could be non-poor and lack a smartphone, right? I mean, it just seemed like this is like a basic thing and it's relatively cheap. Yeah, so you're defining needs based on the cultural and historical context, right? Yeah. And so if you do that, you're using a relative measure of poverty. I mean, it's in a sky. I'm saying disagree with you, not to dispute you, right? And what I'm basically saying is that my own intuitions are almost not – that we should define poverty as half the median, but almost like we should define poverty as half the median from 10 years ago. And I know that makes yeah, no sense. I'm just well, telling you, know, you that's you, my intuition. No, I, I think, and you know, I would acknowledge and even celebrate the fact that half the median is a crude approximation. Why is it half? Why is it not sure. 60% of the median? It's just because you want to tie the benchmark at one place, and that's a perfectly reasonable one. And I like putting it at 50 sure. because it makes clear that you're making an explicit choice. It makes your assumption explicit. Um, now, it also makes you arithmetic. Yeah, more importantly... <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I've submitted a lot of papers with these relative measures of poverty over the years, and I don't think I've ever once not had a reviewer say, why don't you show it to me with 40%? Why not 60%? Why not 70%? So it got to the point where almost mechanically, we write appendices where we just vary the threshold over and over again to make them stop, you know, which I think you can sympathize mm-hmm. with, Gabriel. Um, but I think, yeah, like, yeah. you know, as long as we're thinking of poverty as a shortage of resources relative to needs, I don't know any coherent sociologist that would define needs absent cultural and historical context. And, and I want yeah. to make another argument in your favor, which is, you listed relative deprivation, but I would also include something that's not exactly relative deprivation, but kind of close, which is positional goods. Sure. Include, yeah. And I would include economic segregation as a positional good, right? If if there are spillovers from your peers, yeah. then being able to choose the peers you want as you know basically a high income or a high social class peer group, then that's a positional good. And that's probably a pretty important. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's inherently relevant. Well, and, so. and let's be clear. I mean, like poverty scholars have thought about this for a long time. Even Adam Smith, you know, talked of poverty as a matter of like um, not having the, the cultural customs of your time being perceived as indecent. And he gave the example yes. of like appearing in public without shame was the definition of poverty. And he said, like, if you lacked a linen shirt in a society like his, where having a linen shirt was one of the ways to appear in public without shame, then you would be poor. Mm-hmm. And Anthony right. Atkinson gave the example, like in the 80s, he gave the example of not having a phone would be a way to be poor. If you couldn't afford a phone because you couldn't get a job and you couldn't, you know, get healthcare access without access to a phone. So, I mean, all you know, if you really think about it carefully, it's hard to think of poverty without a culturally and historically contextualized definition of need. Now, that said, I should say this paper doesn't depend on any of that. You could change the threshold uh-huh. and it's just going to change the the prevalent. It, it's going to change the, the, the coefficients, but it's going to change the coefficients in similar ways across countries. You know what I mean? So if Wait, we came you can up- change the threshold. From fifty percent of the median to forty percent of the median, or you can change the threshold. Yeah, to some and I mean, like, so it's not going to may shuffle the countries a little bit. But the major conclusions of the paper that the United States has a relatively below average prevalence of these risks. Actually, the U.S. is not looking bad on the prevalence of these risks. And what's unusual is that the United States has by far the worst penalties attached to these risks. That pattern's going to hold if you go to forty or sixty percent, because we had to do it for the reviewers. So you know, that's not where the action is in this paper. I should say. I, I do think that there is an absolute 
poverty standard that you can you can spell it. Where is it, Joe? Well, I've I, in my own book. In my own book, uh, I don't do a systemic study like you do with uh, thresholds. But conceptually, the way I thought of it was anything that uh, lessens your health, shortens your lifespan. Or prevents you, or makes it harder for you to attain some level of ind- uh, economic independence. And there are yeah, but all of those are cultural. Those are all relative to the consumption standards of American society, right? Well, they're they are they are they are. Well, uh, health is not like that's just how many years do you live, and uh, you know your morbidity and all that. And then yeah. and then uh, it, you're right though that it is contingent on the demands of the economy in which you're set. And it's contingent yeah. on uh, how your society uh, distributes the goods that you need to stay alive and stay indoors. So there is some type of – Yeah, Joe, I agree with you and I think actually we would agree on this. So Amartya Sen has this idea of like there's an absolutist core to poverty. Mm-hmm. And what he means is it's not in economic resources. It's in well-being or in purchasing capability. And so what you're saying is that well-being is low – but I would say it's the shortage of resources that – like uh, Sen says that resources purchase well-being, but well-being is different from resources. And I'm ta- poverty is a matter of resources. Well-being is the, the well, what you purchase or you are unable, unable to purchase if you're poor. So I agree that there's this absolutist core of well-being or capability. But I think when you define poverty, you have to define it relatively to figure out who can't purchase that well-being. Can you give us uh, – for – our listeners who are not attuned to uh, how other societies organize their uh, social systems, can you give us a taste of how America does differ from uh, Europe? On what? On social policy? Like, yeah, on social policy. Like oh, how, how, how does the – can you give us some broad characterization of, for example, how the German social safety net would differ uh, from the American one? Oh, it, you know, it's hard. And I think we often do give the comparison. I've written this paper a bunch about, you know, the U.S. is very different from everybody else. And that's true. But it's also important to acknowledge that there's really big differences amongst all rich democracies. And it's probably best to think of rich democracies as a reign on a continuum rather than like a binary of the U.S. versus everybody else. Right. Because there's some European countries like Spain and, um, you know, also um trying to think of another country. Uh, you know, there's certain rich democracies that don't do a phenomenal job for the poor either. The U.S. Well, isn't Canada, alone in this regard. Like Israel, Israel does a very poor job for the poor these days as well. Um, but so, I mean, you know, so, and I would always say that, you know, the welfare state works because it's this complex of integrated programs, which, by the way, makes it really hard to causally identify because there's a whole bunch of different social policies that are interacting with each other in organic ways that collectively and holistically create a different economic playing field for workers and for poor people and so forth. But some obvious ones, I mean, big, big differences would be the provision of health care. I mean, so that's free. It's widely available. It is cheap. OK, um, I give the example that. I had one kid in the United States and I had another kid in Germany. And so I ran kind of a natural experiment. And, you know, the quality of prenatal care was very similar in both places. And the experience in the hospital was very, very similar. But in the United States, once you're done, you've had the baby, you go home, you come back for these doctor checkups. And since your kid always has the the cold, you have to keep going back. But in Germany, what they would do is they would send what they called a midwife and she would just come to your apartment all the time to check on you. So they do these in-home visits and they would see your living conditions. They'd address your needs. They'd attend to both the mother and the child. And they did all kinds of things right there for you. So you didn't have the stress of going to the doctor's clinic, but they also are intervening in everybody's everyday lives to see how the children are living. And this is a really cost effective intervention that we could do here in the United States. And we just politically choose not to, but it would make a big difference. It would certainly reduce our infant mortality and it would it would definitely improve infant health and it would probably improve everybody's well-being in many ways. Other examples, if you're in Germany, for example, you get a child benefit. So if you have a kid, you just get a check in the mail. It's automatically guaranteed. Regardless of income, it's not means tested and everyone gets it. And you know that's a way to say the society has decided we're just going to provide economic resources to the children regardless. 
We don't care why they're whether they're low or high income. We just view children as a resource worth investing in. And so that's a cost effective intervention as well. But we don't do that because politically it's not it's not supported here in the United States. So those are two good examples. But it layers throughout everything. I mean, it's in the unemployment benefits, it's in the you know, the old age pensions, it's in the, uh, you know, the cost of goods and needs. Um, so it just sort of is a, an organic whole of a complex of interdependent social policies. I know Mark Kleiman is always talking about that home nurse visit thing. And apparently there's been pilot studies in the United States, and it seems to be pretty effective here too. And then second of all, with this issue of um, a child allowance, uh, that that's something that Mike Lee and uh, Marco Rubio, especially Lee, have been pushing pretty hard Although um, I have no idea how generous it is relative to the German program, but it is something that is some to be in some respects on the table, kind of a UBI for kids. I will say that I will say the difference, like just in terms of the pilot programs with the nurses, those are programs that are designed specifically for um, for low income women of color in order to reduce both infant and maternal mortality risks, um, and also, uh, yeah, and also to ensure that you know we don't have. Uh, uh, early early term pregnancies and to also reduce the risk of low birth weight. And what they've found is that they've been able to actually get rid of those gaps, racial and um, and income gaps. So just saying. So you know. mm-hmm. And and also think about like I mean it, it might it really would be pretty cost effective. It really wouldn't be very expensive to send out midwives to every new baby, you know, for the first few months and check in on those families, go visit the home settings. It really would be cost effective and we don't do it just because of politics. It's not resources that prevents us from doing that policy. And now a word from editor Bing. In your revisions, be sure to discuss the important contributions of Rajal Ghul, 2005, to the sociology of nihilism. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to David Brady from UC Riverside. His book is Rich Democracies, Poor People, How Politics Explain Poverty from Oxford University Press. And his latest major publication is an AJS, Rethinking Risks of Poverty, a Framework for Analyzing Prevalences and Penalties. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Socianex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Merry Christmas. Bye. Bye. Happy Hanukkah. Uh, it'll be over by the time they hear it. Uh, happy Kwanzaa, then. Yeah. Actually, it'll be like two days. Or something. <laughs>